turn. Just stand there and look for it. I know, that's all I'm going to do. I'd like to introduce uh, Dr. Melissa Warner. Uh, our speaker that was at, scheduled in this slot was Dr. Marvin Seppla, and he called me yesterday at noon, and he was skiing, and he hurt his back and couldn't get on the plane. And he lives in Oregon, and I thought he didn't have enough time to walk, so I told him we'd have to substitute for him. As a matter of fact, when we walked in yesterday, I was talking to Lynn, and I was talking to Mel, and I said, you know, we don't have Marv here. And they said, what happened? I told him, and I said, Lynn, have you got a, something you can talk about? And he said, yeah, but she can talk about something. I turned around to her and I said, Mel, what do you got? She said, I've got a great talk on the big book's been right all along. And I thought, that's perfect. So one of my best friends and one of the most outstanding of our colleagues in this field, Dr. Mel Warner. Can you all hear me? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, I'm going to do this to make me feel better. I really liked, you going to get that or should I move this down? I really like Chappie's slides to take a breath, so I'm actually going to ask all of us to take a breath. Thank you. Thanks. And then I'm going to say, hi, I'm Mel. I'm an alcoholic. Thank you. Okay. All right. Um, I'm going to come down here so I can see what I'm doing. Um, this is sort of a fun thing I put together, not necessarily for this setting, um, but for some uh, more for lay people in a way, but hopefully it'll be of interest or maybe something you might want to use with people you work with or will prompt something. Um, you'll find it completely congruent with a lot of what we heard throughout the day today. And so I'm going to keep going. Oh, who's my time checker? Okie dokie. Okay, so uh, the title is The Big Book's Been Right All Along, which is something uh, I've taught to my patients uh, for a long time. And uh, so what I'm kind of trying to have tried to do is put a little bit of that neuroanatomy, some of the stuff you've already seen here, um, in with that. So it's either a quote from the big book or the 12 and 12. It's an actual, you know, something from a scientific journal. Anything the rest is just this doctor's opinion. Okay, whatever that's worth. Okay, um, so which big book are we talking about? Not the big, big book, but this big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, period. Okay, um, you know, when, when, when Chappie was just showing the stuff on pain management and it was, what, four out of two, 12,000 people had addiction, um, you know, I knew that couldn't be right because it sort of doesn't matter what population we end up looking at one way or another, whether it's Vietnam vets coming back or people with pain management, somehow the statistics come out about 10 to 15 percent. So that's, that's what you saw in some of the other slides. Um, and, and, and what I feel like is important, and one of the things I share a lot with family and patients is, you know, You've already got this disease, so anyone in your bloodlines just backed out of that last category, and now they're now in the one out of three possibility of developing a, uh, an addictive disorder. They went from one out of ten to one out of three because they share blood with you. Um, just sort of that's the, the nature of the deal there. Um, more and more, as I spend time looking at this and seeing what, what, what people struggle with and what leads to addiction, I really feel like three factors make a big difference. Now, you don't have to have all three. Uh, if you do have all three, you know, it's the highest risk. And in fact, this is some of what I try and, and teach docs and other medical people. Um, 
again, we're talking about pain management, so, um, you know, genetics, we've had absolutely amazing talk on that today, and I need go no further, plus you already knew genetics were a piece. Uh, intoxicant use, you know, that was the one question, I got that one right, false. No, you're not an addict before you pick up, you have to pick something up. Um, but the other factor, and I, I, I had trouble with this for a long time, because I got raised uh, both through a fellowship in addiction medicine at Willingway Hospital, you know, and somewhat in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, that, you know, I drank because I was alcoholic. And, you know, it's not if you had my wife, you'd drink too. As, as was said earlier, I think Burns was pointing out the fact this is a primary disease. Um, but in reality, Stressors do make a difference, and I've seen over and over again where in the setting of genetics and the use of intoxicants, some stressor, whether it's retirement, whether it's, you know, your hip replacement or kind of whatever it is, now is when addiction develops for you. Um, you know, and so that, that's the piece I, I try to take the message to medical people about is, well, if you've got the prescription pad and you're about to write for an intoxicant, you're going to write for Xanax, you're going to write for opiates, you know, whatever, patient's already stressed because they have gone out of their way to finally show up at a doctor's office to get help. You're about to prescribe intoxicants. So what do you need to know if you can possibly figure it out? You know, what, what puts them at risk? Because they're already two out of three by sitting in your office and you're about to write for intoxicants. So kind of a piece I like to talk uh, pass on to medical people. The other place I like to look at these factors is in primary prevention. Okay, primary prevention is the stuff you might do to never get the disease to begin with. Uh, can't change your genetics, but you can know about them and you can know what your risk is. Um, can you not pick up? Can you prescribe for family members in a non-intoxicating fashion, you know? And you better believe that's what any doctor that gets a handhold on any of my kids does, is we look for non-intoxicating approaches wherever possible. Um, and stressors. And if you look at um, uh, some of the information on primary prevention, like in kids, you know, because I'm learning this is a pediatric illness, and, and kids' friends are the vector. But um, primary prevention, if you've got a family history, or even if you don't, well, that leaves stressors, okay? So what are the skills we teach to kids to, to, to refusal and, and to get help for what's troubling them and all that kind of stuff, you know? Because stressors aren't about what the stressor is, it's about what... Um, what factors, what resources, what resiliency you have to deal with a stress when it comes up. Okay, so, um, so what do we know about addiction? I'm, again, not going to tell many of you what you don't already know. Certainly the National Institute of Health have told us in the last many years, Alan Leshner, it's a brain disease. You know, hey, we saw the pictures this morning. It's a brain disease. We know that. Doctor, uh, I slipped this in while I was sitting over there. Let's remember, it's a primary disease. This is not secondary to anything else. You may have awful chronic pain. You may have PTSD. You may have any number of things that got you on the opiates or got you on the Xanax or got you drinking the alcohol or whatever, but it's primary. Once you've got it, the pickle doesn't go back to a cucumber, do they? So, um, so Dr. Andrea Barthwell, who um, some of you certainly will know and others may or may not 
uh, is a former president of the American Society of Addiction Medicine and sort of had to sneak away from us and go off to be one of the assistant drug czars for the current administration. Um, and she had a great way of talking about the disease of addiction and telling us that it's characterized by dysregulation, that means not working right, um, neurochemical mechanisms in the reward and stress circuits, the reward and stress circuits. Again, we saw more about that today. Well, what does it say in the big book? And so um, if it's in parentheses, AA, that means it was in the big book. This is from the doctor's opinion. The doctor's opinion, you'll see other uh, pages and sites and things that you might recognize. Um, and um, obviously, you don't have a handout on this. But anyone who wants to get with me um, who knows how to do it on those flashy things, or I could email to you, I would be glad to share uh, the PowerPoint with you, because it's a PowerPoint. Um, so the doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us. Okay? The action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. The phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. Okay, that, that's talking about what's different here. And, and this is Dr. Silkworth uh, speaking in the doctor's opinion. So what about that? So how did I understand in the very beginning what this allergy was? Um, the picture you show, saw of the big book that you saw is a third edition big book uh, that I got in 1983, but what's on it is, the, is a cover, just a paper cover that I actually got in a Joe and Charlie workshop. Um, I can't remember their last names, but they're these two guys from AA, Joe and Charlie, who used to go around the country doing actual workshops like this, and that's where I got my cover from that you saw a picture of. Um, and I know they still have tapes, and one or the other of them still, um, I think, does speaking and that sort of thing. Well, anyway, you know, that big book, not only do they keep changing it, as I well know myself, um, but when I first got sober, I really couldn't understand any of it anyway. Um, and you, you know, people in AA had to teach me about that. But Joe and Charlie taught me about that. You know, they said that, that, that there is what the that an allergy was an ab abnormal reaction. And I went, okay, I'm a doctor. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah that makes sense, that something wrong happens. You have an allergy to strawberries. Everyone else eats strawberries. They're okay. You're allergic. Something different happens. It's an abnormal reaction. So that was kind of my first, how do I understand abnormal reaction? Well, I understand it a little bit differently today, and we saw some of that today. Um, there's a part of the brain that deals with intoxicants. And just because I might be using a word that, that um, you sort of know or whatever, I'm a little semantical queen on this thing, you know. What's a chemical? You know, well, water's a chemical. All kinds of things are chemicals. What's a substance? Mud's a substance. So I know we've talked this way for many years, but I like to clarify what we're talking about. And we're talking about intoxicants, and that means stuff that gets you high. Because that's how my patients can figure out or help me, you know, figure out, well, if I'm going to take something, how do I know if it's a, a chemical or an intoxicating chemical? That's what we mean. So when I say intoxicant, that's what I'm talking about, stuff that gets you high. And I hate to say this, but I'm going to stand up here and admit it right now. I'm listening to the beautiful talk on PTSD, and, and I abstain from a lot of things these days, and I do lots of healthy things these days, and I did some healthy stuff this morning and everything else, and we're sitting here talking about addiction all day long. And she says, 
and they cut on themselves. You might not have heard it this way, but she said, and they get high. And my brain went, high, get high, get high. Could, maybe I should try that, you know? You know? And then she did the, um, you know, the, the cutting with the, with the shaving. And I was like, gah, you know, that's happened to me before. And I was like, okay, I'm not going to cut it that way, but please, I'm, I'll call my sponsor after the talk here. But at least I have ratted myself out to you guys. Um, so what is the normal reaction that human beings have to taking intoxicants into their body? Well, again, Joe and Charlie taught me about this in the first workshop. And apparently and some of you in this room will know this, because I don't, they have, we take a drink, maybe take two drinks, get a slightly tipsy, out of control, nauseated feeling. And unlike myself and the people I work with, don't care to have any more. Don't think about it, don't plan about it, nothing, just sort of don't care to have any more. This happens to me with cantaloupe, okay? Yeah, that's right. Okay. So that's the normal reaction. Obviously, we work in the field, and you can tell me what the, what the abnormal reaction is. You get a few doses in, and more. Go get more, go get more, go get more in spite of. You know, and in spite of. And, th and that's part of what we're talking about here is in spite of what. And in spite of what is about in spite of what matters to you, what your values are, what your integrity is, what your heart is, what makes a difference. We're going to talk some more about that in a little bit. So, so this is the limbic brain that we're talking about. And, um, and, and what goes on in the limbic brain is this is where our, our instinctual drives and abilities to express, express emotion and pleasure reside. I already got a little dry mouth. Okay. Um, and Brick and Erickson said that, and I you know, stole that from an article of theirs. Um, so... What does AA say in step four? Creation gave us instincts for a purpose, you know, to harvest food, to construct shelter, to reproduce the social instinct. Now, when I read off all those little four off of there, anyone's brain going something, something back here, um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Yeah, see, I'm getting an amen on the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, Okay, just to show, and we're going to, get, we're going to get to see this picture again further in depth, this is the limbic area of the brain. Um, this is my good picture that I like about that. Um, you know, your nucleus accumbens, we heard that's what the James Brown Center, I love that, thank you very much. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, your ventral tegmental area, the locus ceruleus. Um, not sure how familiar you guys are with this. Um, we saw it in the rat, uh, etc. Here, what I like to call the curly part of the brain, the thinking part of the brain, the cortex. Uh, this is where you think about things, you make decisions. Uh, someone talked about that earlier. You know, you know it's a good thing, a bad thing. Well, I'm going to do it anyway or I'm not going to do it. That's where you kind of have judgment, you make decisions, and that sort of thing. But the limbic brain was in the middle there. So, um, so again, our instinctual drives and abilities to express emotion and pleasure. So instinctual drives. Um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is sort of like the, the food pyramid for, for instincts, for basic instincts. And the, the deal goes, if I understand it correctly, is you have to meet the instincts on one level before you move up to the instincts on another level. So the bottom level, and someone please correct me, is something like food, water, shelter. Okay? You've got to have food, water, shelter 
before you move up into like socializing sex and something else. And then you move further up and further up and, um, and you get into like education and spiritual and sort of you come to self-actualization at the top of that. Which interestingly enough, I'm coming to think is something that comes after the 12th step if you've been around long enough doing this sort of thing. But it's sort of about, you know, becoming the best of sort of everything you can be. That's the self-actualization thing. But, but this, and the way this part of the brain works, and I, okay, um, is that it doesn't care, okay? Its job is to meet that instinct. And so if you're at the very basis level, food, water, shelter, this is the part of the brain, the reptile brain in the middle of your head, that if you've had a plane crash on the Andes Mountain and your child is one of the dead folks there, this is the part of your brain that will literally monitor down to a molecular level how much water's in your body, how much protein, all this sort of stuff in your body, and say to you when it needs to, you need to go ahead and start eating your son's leg because your body will not live anymore if you don't. So most people walk around and they don't, this part of the brain isn't talking to them because they're not in an Andes plane crash. They use this for um, torture. And they use water and they use the limbic brain for torture. You torture the person, um, you bring them out, and then you say, if you drink the water, as soon as you drink the water, I'm going to torture you. Okay? And if you're this kind of a torturer, you know how much time no human being can go without drinking water. But if you don't drink the water in whatever that amount of time is, I won't torture and you can go back. So the person drinks the water, you torture them again, they bring you out again. So quiz question is, can you not drink the water the second time to keep from being tortured? No. Because... Your curly part of your brain, your thinking brain, that's what doesn't want to get tortured. I'm guessing that part of your brain might rather be dead. But the limbic brain, its job is survival. So it wants you to survive. It will make you drink the water. Sound like anything anybody in here is familiar with? Okay, so that's it. So the other things that besides the basic instincts that it mediates, as we said earlier, pleasure and emotion, and intoxication. Apparently, we're set up, well, not me, but human beings and other mammals even are set up to deal with intoxicants. Who in here knows about other mammals that get high? Elephants? Elephants, who are pretty amazing, will travel great distances looking for their equivalent of beverage alcohol, okay? What are the koalas doing up in the eucalyptus trees? Hello? They're getting high. I've got a bottle of eucalyptus up in my room right now, actually, okay? So this part of the brain is what does that don't care to have any more. Whether it's don't care to have any more because you took an intoxicant because you wanted to get high, whether it's don't care to have any more because your doctor prescribed, you know, opiates for pain, you know, or whatever. But that's what this part of the brain is supposed to do. That's its normal reaction when it's working right. Okay, so addictive diseases are intoxicant use disorders. The addicted person can't use intoxicants the way they need to. There's an allergy, it's an abnormal reaction, and what happens is, kind of like I described with that torturing thing, the limbic brain, that inner reptile brain, overrides the thinking brain. Basically, it shuts it off. You know, or it 
tells it some story about what it's okay. And I'm sure you all, having people in treatment, could regale me with the stories it tells the person about why it would be okay to go ahead. Um, I put this one in there, and I need to go back outside my office and, and get the quote. This was in one of the psychiatric journals within the last year. I'm not a psychiatrist, but a friend shared this with me. Um, and, um, and basically, he talks about addiction as a pathological usurpation of the limbic brain as well as the cortex, the thinking brain. Okay? So again, that's what the story is here. And, and you can see, and we again, so it earlier. You've got the limbic brain here that sends messages back out to the cortex and it overrides what you intend and it sends the wrong message of get more, get more. Okay. Um, and, and again, we went through some of this earlier. You guys got to hear, you know, glutamate, GABA, your endorphins, your dopamine, your um, serotonin. You know, it's all wrapped up in there doing all that good stuff when it's working right and messing up when it's not. So kind of, again, what's the job of the reptile brain? You know, I've been told it's the four Fs. Feeding, fighting, <clears throat> fornicating, and fear. Okay? They didn't tell me it was fornicating when they told me, but I figured that part out. <laughs> okay. So this is, the, uh, this is the part of the brain that you don't want to get too hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Feeding fighting, okay, that's this part of the brain. That's why they were right about everything in Alcoholics Anonymous, is you don't want to get too hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Well, what else did they have to say about this? Fear, page 62, driven by, you see, and I always, this is a misread here, I always think it's a thousand forms of fear. In reality, it's only a hundred forms of fear, but <laughs> driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity, you guys know the rest of that. Uh, it touches about every aspect of our lives. It was an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. Such a, such a painful disease. Such a painful disease. Instincts. What does it say about instincts in the big book? Okay, this is in the uh, step book right here. Um, I remember, and I must have been a few years sober because I could actually read it and understand it. I remember being in a step meeting. Now, I didn't quite read it the right way, but I remember being in a step meeting and reading about step four and reading the thing that what I heard was our natural instincts gone awry. It's actually a stray, <laughs> but in my mind, it was gone awry. And to me, in a way, that was about there's a disease here. Like that this good and natural part of ourselves, it went awry, okay? Again, perfectly necessary and right and surely God-given. Our great natural assets, the instincts, have turned into physical and mental liabilities. It's because the part in the brain taking care of them isn't working right. Instincts run wild in themselves is the underlying cause. Right there, says it in the book. That's what the disease right there, you know. Doesn't have a little picture like my picture, but it's right there in the big book. Instincts gone astray have been the primary cause of his drinking. And, and obviously, um, or maybe not obviously, but I should say it, um, you know, I'm using the Alcoholics Anonymous big book. To me, as was said earlier, Lynn, um, alcohol is a drug. 
So, you know, addiction is addiction in my mind. It's about this part of the brain not working right. And so, you know, these are quotes that are from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And maybe someday I'll expand moving into the Narcotics Anonymous or one of our other books. But, um, you know, basically to me, it's, it's all working the same here. Okay. So again, Dr. Silkworth talked about um, the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and, and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. They were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control, their cerebral control, their thinking brain control. Okay? So again, it's that pathological usurpation where that reptile brain, and I hate to tell you, I live in reptile brain world, I can now sit down and I'll be talking to a patient and they might be perfectly fine when they start talking to me, but all of a sudden some words start to change and I can see the little reptile things going around their lips and I know we st I've stopped talking to their thinking brain and their reptile brain is talking to me now. So if I transmit any of that to you, you all can walk around thinking reptile brain now too. But it's the pathological usurpation, that's what the craving is, is, is about. So. Um, I'm going to explain this, and in case this helps anyone, you know, the first time I saw this, uh, this slide or pictures like this, I couldn't tell there was any difference here at all whatsoever. Um, but there is. There's a big difference, and, and, and this is what it's about. Basically, this is looking at craving. This is, um, I think it's PET scanning. It's sort of x-ray, looking at metabolism in the brain. Sometimes we actually tag markers, but this is looking at craving. So this is taking someone with cocaine addiction okay so first they're looking at nature video and it's again it's the amygdala your James Brown right here and the anterior cingulate which is another uh, part of the um, another nucleus in the in the limbic brain and the first one here they're showing nature video to the cocaine addicted person nature video to the cocaine addicted person so what you're looking for is this spot Okay, so that's that spot right there, nature video. So what you're looking at is a little bit of yellow, tiny bit of red you might be able to see in, in the middle. This spot, amygdala, a little bit of yellowish green, tiny bit of red in the middle. Then you just show cocaine video. You don't give cocaine, you don't do anything else, you show cocaine video, and now this part, of the amygdala right here is acting differently. It's much more excited. Um, Again, the difference, much more orange, more, more, more going on here. And that's another sort of part of the pathology, is it gives inordinate attachment, far beyond what it should, attachment, um, to, um, to the, um, in this case, for the cocaine-addicted person, to whatever they see in the cocaine. Uh, so essentially the same thing here with the anterior cingulate. A little bit orangey, much more red there. A little bit orangey, much more red there. They're much more affected. The brain is acting a different way. It's overreacting, basically. And, and one of the best uh, examples I heard of this um, was I heard from Dr. Um, Colorado. Who's their director? Michael Gendel, yes, thank you, uh, who's the Colorado Physicians Health Program uh, medical director. Mike talked about a, a woman who had uh, been trying to get sober for a long time. I think he might have been talking about uh, Camperl and its benefit. But anyway, um, this woman had not been able to stay sober, alcoholic lady, not been able to stay sober, not been able to stay sober. Uh, at this point, she was actually sober a couple of years, and she brought in a picture to him, excuse me, from a magazine. And... Um, 
And he looks at the picture and he sees a picnic, beautiful field, flowers, mountains in the background, some woods, uh, gourmet foods laid out, sort of all this sort of things, picnic basket. I can't remember whether there were people there or not. Um, and he's kind of not understanding. And she said, do you see it? And he's like, the beautiful picnic? And she's like, no. This is where my hair stands up on the back of my neck. About this much, sort of in the little crook of the lid of the picnic basket, she could see the top lip of a wine bottle. And she said, Dr. Gendel, when I look at this picture, that's all I see. Okay? That's what this is. Okay? That's the picnic basket thing. It is inordinately attached, and, that, and that's part of this disease. And for me, you know, and, and I'd been around long, long enough, the first time, you know, it was one thing to read the natural instincts gone astray in the fourth step, but many, many years later, when all of a sudden I got to look at a picture, like a medical picture that said, this is a picture of how this brain is diseased, I don't know, for some reason, I got a little more relief on that. I don't know. So, so that's part of why, uh, why I show this to folks. Um, so a similar kind of thing. Um, again, it's about memory. Nature video, the cocaine, uh, uh, cocaine video. Probably you can tell now, not much happening here on nature. All lit up over here. You know, kind of, you know, fine nature, who cares? Cocaine, freaking out. You know, one of the things that, you know, obviously I'm terribly grateful for and, and is, you know, we, we were talking earlier about sort of what works and what doesn't work, but this was a hopeless and untreatable condition, um, a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Um, you know, and we've seen addictive illnesses documented throughout time. Um, you know, Dr. Al Mooney was mentioned earlier. I have heard other people who'll kind of go back into as long as man has been documenting man and man's behavior, whether it's in books or even in pictures or stories, addiction's been there. You know, but we had nothing but palliative treatments, just things that could kind of help people out until 1935 when this spiritual solution became applicable. Now, Carl Jung had recognized the spiritual solution, but, you know, as a physician, how do I just sit down and prescribe spiritual solution? Well, I can do that now. You know, I pull out my prescription pad and, and, and say to people, you know, things like, I want you to read the acceptance paragraph on page 417 three times a day, or, you know, different, you know, six words, thy will not mine be done. I wrote that on a prescription for a patient the other day. So, um, so what, what are the sobriety essentials? Again, we're kind of getting into my opinion. Book says it's a spiritual answer and a program of action. Abstinence, spiritual experience, and addict with addict are, are kind of, as I've looked at it, what makes a difference. Uh, it was until these three, three things all got put together, all three of them together. You know, we tried telling people not to drink. That didn't get us anywhere. Uh, spiritual experience, Carl Jung had talked about that, um, you know, and that's what the, um, the Oxford folks were working on and all kind. you know, again, um, addict with addict, you know who, who, uh, who uh, brought up addict with addict like in the 1800s? Anybody know? Abe Lincoln. Abe Lincoln saw that when one addicted person worked with another uh, addicted person, there seemed to be a benefit. 
Okay, so abstinence, you know, the only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. That's what we have in the doctor's opinion. Um, and, and to me, entire abstinence doesn't just mean from whatever kind of intoxicant you have a problem with. I think we heard of the marijuana maintenance earlier today. You know, and the idea of cross addiction that either, and for any reason, you know, we're just talking about you have to have surgery or you have to have your colonoscopy or whatever, you know. Um, and if intoxicants need to come into that reptile brain of yours again, you need to be really careful. And your, your brain doesn't know whether it came from the health food store or from the doctor or, or whatever. You know, but, but your brain knows. So that either you could become, return and relapse to your original addiction or, of course, develop a new kind of addictive disorder to the new intoxicant that, that gets into your brain there. So this is my new slide that someone just shared with me. Um, Again, we're, we're, we're way inside the limbic brain here, your ventral tegmental area, your nucleus accumbens, those two big nuclei. And, and what I like about this slide is it shows kind of no matter what intoxicant we're talking about, they all end up working together. So you've got your nicotine and alcohol, your opiates, uh, possibly alcohol, nicotine, stimulants, the cannabinoids, PCP, alcohol, opiates. You know, all these say the benzos are kind of included under, um, basically under things that have to do with alcohol. They tend to be pretty much the same. So, you know, why does it make sense that, well, if my doctor prescribes opiates, you know, but I'm alcoholic, well, it doesn't matter. If it's going to come in here and get that reptile brain hungry again, you know, that, that's a potential problem. So it, it, it's a spiritual remedy, okay? Uh, and here's Carl Jung, vital spiritual experience in the nature of huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. This is, this is what we need to have. Relieved of his drink obsession by a sudden spiritual experience. For most cases, there is virtually no other solution. <laughs> okay, this is the solution. You know, and this is what I teach my patients. It's a spiritual solution. You know, I'm a doctor, but I can't help but face the obvious. It's a spiritual solution, so if you want to recover, you've got to do the deal. Again, uh, unless the person can experience the entire psychic change, the spiritual uh, experience, there's little hope for recovery. You know, and so what happens? Um, and, and this is why, you know, I love this deal. You know, I've got plenty of other doctors who think I'm crazy for working with addicted people. You know, I think people who do, like, rheumatology, they must be crazy. But, um, you know, what other disease do we work with where when people, that is treatable, that when people get into recovery, they often have a higher quality of life than they ever had before? Does it get any better than that? I don't think so. A profound alteration in his reaction to life, tapping that unsuspected inner resource, having the awareness that a power greater than ourselves is the essence of the spiritual experience. And that comes out of the, out of the appendix. And of course, you know, about the solution. We have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude towards life, toward our fellows, towards God's universe. You know. And yeah, they looked like that guy. Long sleeves, uh, sunglasses, 
They came in looking like that or worse, didn't they? On the broad highway, walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. Um, you know, some of the promises at the end of step five. If, if you kind of go, I can't remember if Joe and Charlie taught me that, it might well have been, but that in reality, if in the big book you go at the end of each step, one, two, three, four, there are promises right there that for each one. It's not just after eight and nine. It probably was Joe and Charlie. Nothing I know is because I thought it up, I guarantee you that. Okay, so Abraham Lincoln, the addict with an addict idea. To keep all these pieces, you know, that's why I tell my patients, you know, if it wasn't, you know, we could just have you take a big book and a step book and I could send you home. But that doesn't work, does it? Doesn't work. You have to have addict with an addict. Only an alcoholic could help an alcoholic. One alcoholic could affect another as no non-alcoholic could. And do not even begin to get the wrong idea in here, because I happen to, for my own level of comfort, uh, because I suspected there might be other alcoholics out there, I revealed I was an addict so that you all could say hi, Mel, to me and make me feel better. That's part of how addict with addict works. But don't get the wrong idea. I believe that people educated in treating addiction, uh, you know, certainly you don't have to be an addict. You know, you need to be an educated person, and that's why we're here to have this conference. You know, but this, this is what's from AA, but I don't want to, like you said, I'm going to walk out of here saying Dr. Warner said oh, only alcoholics can treat alcoholics, because I didn't say that. Um, but then again, strenuous work, one alcoholic with another, was vital to permanent recovery. You can't stay sober if you aren't working with the other ones. Hang together or die separately, okay? Recovery begins when one alcoholic talks with another alcoholic, sharing experience, strength, and hope. Immunity. How about that? There's a guarantee right there. There's a promise. Nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intense work with other alcoholics. It works when other activities fail. And I'm going to tell you something right now that, um, that I found out from Dr. Hankus one day, and I bet he doesn't even remember this, but I found out you don't even have to help other alcoholics, okay? I called his one house one day looking for help, and the person I wanted to help me wasn't there, but he was on the phone, and I knew he got this thing, and I was like, oh, I'm all in a mess right now, you know, whatever, and I'm in the airport. And he's like, Mel, go find some little old lady and help her out. I was like, she doesn't have to be alcoholic, just find some little old lady and carry her bag? Okay, got my activity, you know, got my thing to do so Mel can feel better. And, uh, and off I go. And do you think there was a little old lady out there with a bag that I could help? No. <laughs> I had to work very hard to do that thing, you know. But I did it because I wanted to feel better. So not only does it work, and I got to tell you, in my case, and I watch it with my other people I'm hanging out with, whether it's patients or other people in the rooms, perfect, we're in great shape. Um, the last thing the addicted person remembers when they're in rough shape is, go help somebody else, you know. So we need to tell each other that, and we need to tell our patients that, you know. That's what I tell, write that down on the prescription pad, go help somebody else. We need immunity. So I'm actually done. Impressive me, okay. Um, you know, your job now is to be of maximum helpfulness to others. It's just all sort of one, one big circle. And, and obviously one very, very beautiful thing for this disease that, that was horrendously hopeless and untreatable until 1935. So thanks for your attention at the end of a very long day, everybody.